there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to the 400th episode of T4C. If you're a regular listener, then you probably already know that one of the last questions I try to ask my guests in most of our interviews revolves around a time in their professional life when they struggled. I've tried to be very candid about the fact that I was fired twice in my 40s, and those were certainly among the most humiliating and painful professional experiences I've had, but without them, I wouldn't be where I am today, and I learned to feel incredibly grateful that I had been fired. I'm sharing all of this with you because I want you to be mentally prepared for the very real likelihood that your professional journey, while I certainly hope it'll be as exciting and interesting and fulfilling as much of the last 30 years have been for me, it's also going to require you to develop grit and guts and resilience because, my friends, that is what it's going to take for you to realize your dreams, whatever they may be. And don't worry, if you don't have dreams or passions right now, as you begin your professional life, often you don't realize what they are until you're much farther down the road. So as you've probably guessed, today's 400th episode of Time for Coffee is not going to feature a single interview with one guest. Instead, to mark this big milestone, we've produced a special mashup for you from five different interviews with some truly exceptional professionals, each of whom has a memorable story about a time when they faced a big challenge, specifically a time when they were fired. But before I introduce you to these very special people, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you an exclusive peek inside the episodes and the professions we're going to be featuring that week. And it is super easy to do. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, my hope is that you're going to find this episode to be turbocharged with inspiration. Because despite getting fired, each one of these people has had a super successful professional life with tons of accolades and big titles. In fact, I want you to see for yourselves that far from setting the back professionally, getting fired turned out to be a pivotal moment for them, one they leveraged to reach even greater heights in their careers. And I want you to try to internalize what they share with you and remember that your professional journeys are going to be full of zigs and zags and roadblocks and hurdles and challenges and that is 100% normal. You can and will thrive. And remember, I am only a click away if you need some more motivation. So grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guests today include Shri Srinivasan, co-founder of DigiMentors, Guy Craig Vachon, founder and managing partner of Chowderhead Growth Fund, 
and Mei Chang, until recently, the Chief Innovation Officer with the Pete Buttigieg for America campaign. Patrick Curtis, founder and CEO at Wall Street Oasis. And last but not least, Sarah Rob O'Hagan, Chief Executive Officer at Exos. Shri, in most of the Time for Coffee interviews, I ask my guests to share a low time for them in their profession. I'm actually going to ask you a very specific question because it really was extraordinary the way that you handled this. You were working at the Met as the first chief digital officer there. You were so public about the fact that you got laid off. I mean, another way of putting it is you got fired from your job and you asked your followers for feedback as to where you should go next. And you got a thousand suggestions. Why did you decide to be so public? Well, thank you uh, for bringing up this because I think there are a lot of people can learn and have learned from that experience. Not a week goes by where someone doesn't drop me a note saying thank you for that episode in your life. And to sum up, as you said, I was doing the job of a lifetime in a career that was already wonderful that I've been blessed in so many ways, working at the Met, bringing digital to the masses and the fans of art. And I loved everything I was doing. I had left Columbia on my own after having loved that episode in my life of 20 years. And uh, I also left uh, behind the tuition benefits that come from being a professor at Columbia for your kids. So I'd left something like a million dollars in tuition benefits for my children behind. But I said, hey, I got 17 Van Goghs. It was a good trade. <laughs> and, and I loved every minute at the Met. We were kicking butt, as they say, in every single measure of what we were trying to do, my and my team. And I was brought in one day and told I'm leaving the Met. And it was such a shock because nothing prepares you for that. And I thought I was being brought in for a specific meeting we were going to do. And instead, this is what happened. And I said, I'd work for free. I love my job. Just I'll do my own fundraising. But of course, there's no such thing in the real world. And I did go on to the internet and ask the internet for help. And in what was the worst moment of my life was also the best moment of my life because I got these 1400 people around the world gave me what I call a global digital hug. And it meant so much to me. So many people have said you've now taught your children the most important quality of all resilience, that life is not an elevator or an escalator. Life is a roller coaster. And I agree with all of that. I just wish they could have read a book about it or watch a TED talk. They don't need to have me be the TED talk in order to learn all that. But they've been great. My wife has been wonderful. And there's also an opportunity for all of us to do a shout out to the loved ones in our lives who support us through thick and thin. And that none of us does anything by ourselves. Everything that we do comes from all of us working together and helping each other out in what we need to do. How did you deal with the loss of face. And the reason that I ask you that is that I was laid off from CNN in 2007 after I had worked there for 14 years. And I wasn't as brave as you. I didn't go public. I didn't say I was basically fired. They chose not to renew my contract. I tried to spin it because I was concerned it would affect my ability to get my next job. And of course, there was a feeling of like, this isn't the way I wanted to leave. So how did you deal with that? 
wasn't easy. And as I said, it became the best thing that I ever did going public. But in the moment, I certainly did not want to do that. The last two sets of people I told were my kids who would be worried that there's no Christmas this year. And my parents who wouldn't want a 46 year old unemployed son, they would, they, they would know what to do, how to deal with that. So I was very, very reluctant to go public. But I also understood the era we're in, the time we're in, the community I had built, the network I had built. So all of that mattered. I've written a series of tweets and we'll give you the link so that people can read them in the show notes, perhaps. But here, I'll just read these out very quickly because I think they capture how I was feeling and also how these jobs things happen. It's a job loss can happen anytime to anyone at any level in any organization. Job loss can happen no matter how well you're doing your job. Job loss can happen even if you're doing everything they ask of you, even if you're hitting every goal and it can happen even if you've had nothing but glowing performance reviews, of course, many people lose jobs because they're terrible at their jobs, but that's a different story. But And nothing prepares you for job loss. It can all happen all of a sudden, or you might read the writing on the wall, shock, disbelief, anger, a sense of betrayal, overwhelming sadness are all common reactions. And then on top of all of that, many of us fight ageism. I went to look for a job at one of the most progressive, iconic, liberal organizations slash leaders in America and felt ageism directly in my face. And nothing prepared me for that. Here I was thinking I'm Mr. Cutting Edge Digital Guy, and they couldn't figure out what a 46-year-old would know about digital. So all of this is not to wallow in my problems, but to say this happens to everybody. I want to talk with you about the failures and about the wrong turns, or at least just one of them, Craig, because mm -hmm. one of the things that I try to do in every time for coffee interview is to model for our young listeners the fact that even incredibly successful people like Guy Craig Vachon stumbled, struggled, fell down, picked yourself up and started again. Could you share one gem with us? Yeah, of I got a gem. A real rough patch. And most importantly, how you persevered and maybe a lesson that you learned in the process. Sure. When I left uh, AT&T, Craig McCaw moved on to Nextel and bought a big portion of another cellular carrier called Nextel. And I became... Uh, one of the executives in Asia Pacific for growing those three or four markets. It became really evident really quickly. Uh, this was the second time I was living in Japan that we were undercapitalized. We didn't have enough money to compete. We were competing against a company in Tokyo called Docomo. Docomo had 60,000 cell sites in the Tokyo metropolitan district, and we had 12. And cell sites are really expensive, especially in, you know, uh, real estate driven markets like Tokyo. And so I knew we just weren't going to be successful. And so I pulled this monster fuck up. I decided I was going to go learn how to do fundraising. I was going to sit with some really smart people, raise a bunch of money, in this instance, $250 million, and go and buy these properties from Nextel and Craig McCaw. And, um, I sat with uh, George Soros and earned his uh, promise to invest. And I sat with Prudential Asset Management Asia and earned his pro or their promise to invest. And 
got back and met with the senior leadership of Nextel. And the first words out of their mouth were, you're fired. Oh, my God. Um, they saw it as sort of the ultimate uh, traitor move that I would go outside of the organization to try to find a solution. Even though my proposal was that they would continue to go along and I would fund these businesses and they would eventually be successful, they saw it as, no, you're you know, diminishing our ownership. Uh, we can raise this money ourselves. And why would you put us in this type of situation? And so it was one of those monstrous, you know, I remember <laughs> that, that tearful discussion with my parents saying, I just screwed the pooch majorly. I thought I was this hero coming in with $250 million with the promised investment. And instead, the first words are, you know, hand us your badge, you're fired. And the short story here is I learned it wasn't really that hard to earn investment if you knew what drove the investors. And so I pivoted at that moment and said, I'm going to go to Silicon Valley where there's a lot of really smart entrepreneurs who want to earn investment to grow their companies because I now know how to do this. And so if I were to talk to my 22-year-old or 25-year-old self, it's the opportunity to realize that even when you screw up, sometimes the learning that is gained in that screw up can be so valuable. And that to leverage that learning may in fact be your next career. And may one of the questions I try to ask all the guests on Time for Coffee is to share a time in their professional life when they struggled, whether it was challenging colleagues, a difficult boss, you're in over your head, although I honestly can't imagine that ever being the case for you. But nevertheless, it was a tough time. And more importantly, how you persevered and came through the other side. Maybe I can share two examples, one from early in my career and one from a little later. So early in my career, I worked at a company called SGI that I mentioned, and it was a computer workstation manufacturer. Also, that doesn't exist. There's sort of a theme here that in the tech industry, <laughs> most of the companies I worked in for the first you know decade of my career probably don't exist anymore. But I worked for a project manager who was terrible um, and he eventually got fired. But in the process of working for him and being frustrated that he was so terrible, I, you know, I would think about like, if I was doing this job, this is what I would do. And so after he was fired, I volunteered and said, hey, let me manage the schedule or, you know, I'd be happy to run this and that. And so I ended up taking on some of his responsibilities and more and more over time after he left and became a manager very, very early on in my career. I was probably like 23 or 24 as I think the youngest manager at the time at the company. Wow. And so it was a huge opportunity. You know, I was doing well in my career and my boss, the engineering director there was very supportive of me. And he gave me an opportunity to work on a new project that was getting started that I was really excited about. 
a few months after that, when I was just starting on this new project, he was out of the country and there was a big reorganization that happened. And in the process of this reorganization, this new project got moved under a different engineering director. That engineering director didn't know me from anybody. And he's like, who's this young kid who's like not managed before running this important new project? And he basically took me off the project, you know, while my, ba- my old boss was still out of the country. And you know, I was now like stuck. I was in my early 20s as a new engineering manager with no nothing to manage. And, you know, I didn't know what to do. Like I, I didn't know enough about companies or reorganizations or company politics or anything to know how to navigate this. The one thing I did know is that I knew they kind of screwed me over. And I think they realized that, that, you know, I kind of got caught in between a bunch of stuff that really wasn't my fault. And so I thought about what I really wanted to learn at that point as a new manager. And I knew that I understood engineering pretty well, but I didn't know anything about managing people, honestly. So that was something I felt like I needed to develop more skills on. And so what I did was I asked them to do something crazy, which is let me go work in human resources for three months. (laughs) And so because I think they felt bad about this whole situation, they let me do it. And so I actually went over to human resources, did this sort of rotation around human resources, resources and learned about how all the different functions work, learned about how we hired people, how we handled sensitive situations across the company, how we handled sensitive personnel situations, and learned a lot of things that helped me become a better manager later on. And after those three months, another engineering management position opened up and I was able to step into that with a set of skills that I didn't have before. Fantastic. And I think I was going to tell you about a second example, which was much, much later in my career. I was at a startup company that, you know, was a very hyped startup company building a new product, probably ahead of its time that would really revolutionize the way we communicate and socialize. And, you know, we spent a couple of years building this amazing product, spent a ton of money doing so. I was the head of engineering there, VP of engineering. I launched it into the world and had some passionate users, but didn't hit what we expected to. You know, we didn't have the same success we expected to. And maybe it could have been salvaged, but we had spent so much money getting to that point that we didn't have enough runway to fix it. And so, and this is part of what inspired the book ultimately is sort of going through this experience of kind of failing big, sort of betting everything on this one thing that didn't quite work out perfectly. And because we just didn't have enough runway, I and, you know, at least half my team got laid off. And so we were tossed out on the street and trying to figure out what to do next. And it was in that moment that we were all sort of talking to each other, thinking about what are the different options out there is kind of in the towards the end of the dot com bus. So it wasn't like there were tons of engineering jobs out there. But we had some connections to Google and our CTO had gone to school with Larry and Sergey. And so I ended up interviewing at Google. Most of the folks that had been laid off also interviewed at Google. So I think at least half of the team went over to Google in the end. And And that ended up being a very good choice. And now we get to go back to one of the seminal moments in your professional life when you were at New Heritage Capital, your first job in private equity. It's called New Heritage. It used to be called Heritage Partners, but now they rebranded because it... (laughs) What is it called? It's called... It was called Heritage Partners. Now it's called New Heritage. But yeah, that's... Got it why they rebranded, but (laughs) yes, yes, exactly. New and improved. Yes. So 
this is obviously a time in your professional life when you struggled, you were fired. You and I chatted about this experience before we did this interview. And you shared with me, as you just mentioned a little while ago, that you were really clueless. They did not give you any insight into what caused them to fire you after four months, but you later learned. So could you share with us what happened, how you persevered, and maybe a lesson that you learned in the process? Give a little background. So, you know, I was in investment banking at Rothschild again, working incredibly long hours. I think the transition from investment banking to private equity is often difficult for analysts because you go from an environment where you're basically told when you can go to the bathroom to one, if you're going to a small middle market fund or a smaller fund where you're given very little direction and it's expected that you know what to do. So if you don't know what you're doing or know that you have to have monitoring these portfolio companies or building these certain models and you don't have that financial modeling back, you don't, you don't feel comfortable. And I did. It was just more of I wasn't sure where to jump in, where to jump out and where I fit. And it can be a very tough transition. That being said, there was a little bit of that, I think, in terms of if I'm being honest with myself, but it wasn't for lack of work ethic, right? I would have stayed 80 hours a week if I had to to keep that job and put in the long hours. It was more just you don't get the mentorship, I think, that you get at a larger firm. So my first review comes around, I think it was October. And I remember this vividly because I think it was when the Red Sox won their first championship after 80, 80 something years. It was right after that. And I think it was like early November, or late October, or, or maybe right after, right around the holidays. And it was a first review. I remember it was less than six months in. And at that point, I thought it was going to be a review with a stub bonus, stub bonus meaning a partial year bonus. And I remember coming in there and there was like a lawyer at the table and another one of my direct managers and like one of the founders there. And it was kind of like, you know, we don't think it's working out. We'd like you to sign this form, blah, blah, blah. And kind of pushed a paper over. And I'm, I'm sitting there like just total deer in the headlights, like what? is going on right now. <laughs> I kind of like, well, is there a specific reason? You know, I understand something I did or something I said and said, well, I just don't think the fit is good. I think investment banking is probably better for you. And to me, it was really kind of surprising. In retrospect, I probably should have seen more red flags, but given how naive I was at 24, I just didn't pick up on some of the red flags in terms of like, they would bring me into like an office and be like, you know, you need to do this, that. And I'm like, okay, yeah, no, I get it. Like, you want me to do this more, right? And they're like, yeah, and I would go do it. But specifically, they gave me nothing. And then I, I really didn't feel like signing the paper to get $10,000 was worth it, even at that point. Like, it was kind of like more of just be trying to figure out what was going on. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you know, I don't, this $10,000 is meaningless. My career is a lot more important to me. So it was one of those things where, I said, look, um, they, you know, they try to make it an easier transition. Hey, look, you can work here through January and say you work here through January. You know, you should try to find your next transition. So it was a very awkward time. I was interviewing, but because I wasn't signing that form, I felt like they didn't feel comfortable giving any sort of reference. And I didn't want to sign it because there was no guarantee that they, how, what are they going to say? Right. In terms right. of if I sign it, like, yes, he just started like, and now he's leaving. We don't know why. Or like, there was none of, there was no easy excuse. So, and, and I didn't know I was in the dark, so I didn't really know why either. So it made my interviews incredibly difficult. I was able to do pretty well in the interviews simply because, you know, I just said, I think it was just a fit issue. I, but you know, I'm a hard worker. You can call all my references here. I'm, I know financial modeling extremely well. I'm really passionate about this. So I'd get close, but then they would call. And I think all they would say is, yes, he worked here. And to them, that was like a super red flag, right? 
Yeah. Like, what did you do? Are you a child molester? Exactly. What happened? Like, why, you know, what did he do? So to me, it was a very bad experience. Luckily, I had somebody, um, a guy in my analyst class at Rothschild back in New York vouch for me at his fund in New York. And he got me an interview there and they ended up giving me an offer. And I was working the new fund in New York. I had to go back to New York. I didn't want to go back to New York. I had to go back to New York to kind of keep my career on track. Mm. I mean, move back. And so having done that, I remember just still being in the dark. What what happened there? Like what was going on? And then I remember an article. I remember getting an alert or an article like a year later about some limited partners and there being a huge fallout at the fund where the partners were pointing fingers at each other that the deal he did was the one that went bankrupt or the, the deal he did and just like the LPs, the limited partners that gave the money just being really angry over them just throwing each other under the bus. And the fact of the matter is like, Every month that passed, the team went from, I think, 20 investment professionals eventually down all the way to four because they were going through a very bad performance in terms of the fund. They, mm-hmm. they had a very bad investments. And so from that standpoint, it, it like all clicked and made sense. And I said, that's, that's what was happening. Like They knew the performance was really bad on a couple of these investments. They knew that they had to reduce... They weren't going to be able to fundraise or fundraising wasn't going really well. So they knew that they didn't have the, the overhead to cover this many people. So they had to cut it significantly. They just weren't forthcoming with that, which I think is really kind of messed up. Although I'm sure they were also afraid they didn't want word getting out. Exactly. Exactly. So I I understand from both sides, like the last thing they want to do is tell me, a new associate, hey, yeah, sorry, we're struggling. So we're going to be cutting staff by 60, 70%. And since you're the first in, you're the first out (laughs) or last in, you're the first out. You know, word that I would go talk and say to save my own but talk to other funds and be like, yeah, they're struggling. So Sarah, you've now mentioned, you've alluded a couple of times to the firings that you had earlier in your career. You've referred to, I think it was that period as the canyon of career despair, which is such a great <laughs> evocative expression. Can you talk about what, how, why you were fired and then how you were covered? You, you don't have to tell both times, but one of those times as a kind of teaching moment for how you were able to dig deep, kind of recover your pride enough to go out and get another job? I mean, the first time was by far the most painful um, because I got, I was one person who was fired. So it wasn't like a layoff. This was when I was at Virgin Megastores. There was one person and that was me. And I was given one week of severance and a one-way ticket back to New Zealand. And I lost my visa and my green card application all in one 10-minute meeting. (laughs) Like it was, you're so bad. We want you out of our company and our country. Like it was pretty embarrassing. And for me in that situation, as any immigrant would know, staying in this country, I had three months to figure out how to get another company to sponsor me, which is incredibly challenging. And it was humiliating beyond. I mean, I was 26 years old. I thought I was on the top of my career game. Everything was going great. And when that happens and you are that person who has walked out the door with your box of stuff, it is, I can't even begin to describe how mortifying it feels. People have often said to me, so how the hell do you explain it in your next interview? Which is a great question. And what I would say is that for me, I went through a real process of painful sort of self-reflection and mourning, I would say. And then I can remember, you know, initially when people would ask me what happened and I'd say, I lost my job and that company, they were idiots and they didn't get it. You know, I was blaming it on the situation and the people and the company. And then I would see in that person asking me, 
a look in their eye of like, they didn't really believe me. And I realized it was because I didn't believe myself. And I knew that the truth was I had fucked it up (laughs) and I had it coming and I deserved it. And it wasn't until I kind of fully acknowledged that myself that I was then able to say, okay, now that I know that I made this happen or I let this happen or I contributed to this happening, I am in control of not letting it happen again. And so in the next interview, when people would say to me, you know, why did you leave Virgin? And I would say, listen, I got let go because I didn't ask for help. It's to do da, 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 da. And here's the thing, I will never let that happen again. Gosh, that was the greatest learning. And it's amazing how in an interview situation, the person on the other side of the desk, I think suddenly is like, wow, this is someone who's truly, honestly, authentically aware of who they are. And to me, that was probably the greatest recovery out of all of it was just realizing that trying to cover things up in life is probably the worst thing you can do whereas if you actually just come out and say what it is it will get you a lot further i think in the interview process thanks so much for listening to time for coffee where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24 7 no matter where you live I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.